God, our Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it is as you declare the living word of the living God and that you continue to speak through to our hearts and our lives uh, by that word in a way that is creative, in a way that is transformative, and in a way that is illuminating, shedding light into our darkness. And always you declare with a view to our getting a clearer view of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might love him the more dearly and follow him the more nearly and in all things be the better able to honor him in our day-by-day -day living. And so we'd ask please for that help of your Holy Spirit that he might be our instructor and that as we work our way through this significant part of the Bible uh, you would indeed be using it to shape our perspective, to transform our living and to hone our lives in such a manner that they redound to your praise and glory and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well um, Romans um, and uh, this evening as uh, you would be aware we're on to uh, the uh, the third um, themes uh, you'll see there that are put up that the overarching uh, theme of um, Romans is that theme of salvation that's the the way that I think it's helpful to understand what Paul is on about. It's a very ordered letter that he's writing, and he is uh, writing to the church at Rome really to set out not only his credentials, but more the credentials of the message that he stands for, insofar as his concern, among other things, is to get their support as being, in a sense, his sending church for what he envisaged at this point, would be the next part of his apostolic mission, a pioneering mission that would see him going to the west end of the Mediterranean. And whereas previously Antioch had been his sending church and the eastern end of the Mediterranean, um, he wants something a deal closer to the west end there as his sending church. And as a church that he anticipates will send him out to whom he'll be accountable, who will be supportive of him, his concern is that um, they should know clearly what it is that he stands for. And so this is a very full, very comprehensive statement of the um, message that he proclaims, the message of the whole Bible, and that is in a nutshell, the message of salvation. Uh, and I would certainly argue that that is the theme really that, that runs through the whole of the letter and that it's helpful to be able to see the way in which he um, builds uh, towards an exposition of that theme through these uh, different progressive uh, issues and aspects of it. We sort of start with that salvation is obviously good news. Uh, what makes it good news is the fact that it is by grace. And that's what we looked at last time from chapter 1 verse 18 through to chapter 3 verse 26, recognizing the, uh, the gravity of the problem that we have as human beings, uh, that essentially we don't have a leg to stand on before Almighty God. Uh, we can't um, plead any excuse and we are not able to find any remedy in ourselves. And what God has done is he has given to us a righteousness. That's the essence of his grace. He has provided for us a righteousness that we didn't have ourselves. Um, and that righteousness has been effected for us by Jesus, uh, who has come and as one of us, 
that's what chapter one was careful to underline uh, his humanity. Uh, God has become one of us in order that as a human being, he might do for us what as human beings we have failed to do. And so he has lived out that life of righteousness, uh, that life of perfect obedience, and he has satisfied as well the uh, the demands of God's righteousness by bearing in himself the consequences of our lack of righteousness. And so God has been able to provide that, that dual righteousness, um, a right lived life and the righteous condemnation of sin being born for us. He's able to provide that for us. And that's, that's what he gives in the gospel. And that's the grace of God. Now, the, the flip side of that, obviously, is that um, if it is something that is given, um, how then is it received by us? Uh, because it's not simply imposed on us, but it is given to us. And that's why Paul then goes on in this next section that starts at verse, 30, uh, verse 27 of chapter 3. He goes on to speak about faith as the means by which we uh, receive God's uh, righteousness, that which he has effected for us. So it's not something that we earn, it's not something that we deserve, it is something to be received. And you'll see at the end of um, the passage that we're looking at last week, verse 25, uh, Paul makes a point of underlining it is to be received by faith. That's uh, chapter 3, verse 25. And the, the way that this whole section um, is structured, um, it's maybe helpful for you to have a, a look at this in the, the next slide here, is essentially along these lines. So this really is the, the kind of route map for us this evening. The, the closing verses of chapter three really set out um, some fairly basic principles in relation to faith, uh, what I've called fundamentals of faith, not fundamentals of the faith, but fundamentals of faith, the, the essential character and characteristics of faith. Then in chapter four, uh, the, the whole of the chapter, um, it's uh, underlining, it's Paul underlining the primacy of faith, where he will be um, wanting to insist that this is essentially biblical. This has always been God's way of ministering salvation. It's not like he, he kind of changed his mind halfway through history when he saw that it wasn't working. Uh, this has always been uh, his way of uh, ministering salvation to us. And that's what I mean by the, the primacy of faith. That's the whole of chapter four. Uh, my aim is that we'll take a break at the end of chapter four and then spend the second part of our evening on chapter five, which is really uh, exploring more fully the nature of faith. And if in chapter four, he's underlining that it's essentially biblical, um, in chapter five, he's underlining that it's essentially relational. That's the nature of faith. So we'll come to these in a moment or two, but we start with the, the fundamentals of faith. And if you have a Bible to hand, you will see that um, these verses, 27 to 31, really uh, center around three questions. Paul basically asks three sets of questions. Uh, first of all, in verses 27 and 28, where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what uh, law? The law that requires works? No, he says, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Uh, verses 29 and 30 are really the second set of questions. And then in verse 31, uh, the third set of questions. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So three sets of questions there. And these three sets of questions basically highlight three key corollaries of salvation being by grace and received by faith. And I've put them there on the screen for you uh, so that you're able to, to see what Paul is on about. The first set of questions, verses 27, 28, um, really highlight the, um, the place that there is in the exercise of faith for humility. Faith essentially means that neither you nor I nor anyone else have any cause for boasting at all. All of us are on an equal footing in this regard. It doesn't matter how religious you may be. Uh, it doesn't matter how respectable you may be. It doesn't matter how good you think you are compared to the person next door or anything like that. All of us, bottom line, are on the same footing. All of us have fallen short. None of us have anything to plead. None of us can earn or acquire our salvation. And we are therefore on an equal footing. And we therefore uh, need to recognize that uh, about one another. Remember, Paul is writing to a church where one of the tensions that there has been, and at this time still is, is between Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other. And that tension was one in which quite often um, there would be one group of folk who would look down upon the other and who would view themselves somehow as just being that little bit better than uh, anyone else. And what Paul wants to do is, is just knock that on the head straight off. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or uh, the man on the moon, if you're a human being, you are on an equal footing uh, with everyone else. Uh, we are all in need of God's gift to us. None of us are able by anything we do to earn or deserve even the smallest measure of God's salvation. And it's uh, well for us to remember that because quite often what can happen within a Christian fellowship is that uh, as, as we come to know God's saving grace and as we know the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, as he begins to transform us, we can subtly, and it's a lie of the devil obviously, we can subtly begin to think that somehow actually we're not doing too badly and we start comparing ourselves with others and, and begin to think somehow that actually I'm a little better than uh, X, Y, or Z, um, other people that we see out of the corner of our eye. And what Paul wants to underline is that um, the life of faith is characterized always by that humility. And that's the first set of questions. Then um, uh, verses um, <clears throat> 29 and 30, the next set of questions highlight the fact that faith is always uh, complemented by hope. Um, and no matter who you are, no matter what your background, no matter whether you've had a background in the church or have had zero uh, exposure to the gospel before, uh, there is hope for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what a mess you've made of life. It doesn't matter how stained and muddied your past may have been. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what baggage you carry. Uh, there is hope for us. 
since there is but one God of all, and because he has one way of dealing with us in salvation, there is hope for all, no matter where you're from and no matter what your background may be. And that's the, the second um, characteristic that he wants to draw out from these sets of questions. Just again, spelling out the kind of fundamentals of faith. So if you're a believer, uh, once you've grasped what the gospel is, once you've understood that that salvation is by grace, because uh, you're never going to be able to acquire it yourself. And it's something that God has effected for you in its completeness and given to you in Jesus Christ to be received by faith. Then there will be about your life. There will be a characteristic humility, not a, a forced humility. Uh, because most folk can see through that immediately, but but a very genuine humility. You will you will know that you are indebted, absolutely indebted to the living God. That you do not have within yourself any resource that will, in any way, put you in favour with God. He has been gracious to you. There will be alongside that humility a very real hope. Uh, and you will therefore have that expectancy that because it's not dependent upon your performance or how you have measured up, not one little bit, there is therefore always hope. It's about a God who is gracious towards us and who does not deal with us according to our desert and a God who has been pleased in his kindness and love to give to us all that we have needed. And therefore there will be that hope and that hopefulness about our living. And again, we, we do well as we read through this just to pause and reflect and ask ourselves, is that characteristic of me or am I just uh, someone who comes across as very negative, someone who comes across always as very pessimistic, someone always who sees the, the dark side of things and who uh, will assume somehow that things are, uh, even if they're good, they're bound to get bad sooner or later. Uh, it's a kind of occupational hazard of being Scottish, I suppose, that you've, you've lived through uh, so many sporting events where uh, you thought that victory was within grasp and then blow me, uh, you lose it at the last minute type of thing. Um, we stand out over against that. Believers um, who discovered the grace of God are characterized by hope. And the third set of questions that Paul raises in verse 31 are very important as well. Um, do we nullify the law then? Uh, if it is by grace, if it's something that God does for us, does that mean we therefore have no regard now for the law of God, that the law of God somehow doesn't matter? And, and what Paul wants to, to underline, and, and he wants to put a marker down straight off, and he'll, he'll expand on this a good deal more in, in chapters 6 and 7 before going on to spell it out in 12 to the end. Uh, he wants to put a marker down to say, no, you misunderstand that gift of God if you don't appreciate that what God has done for you is given to you a righteous state and uh, condition before himself and also by his Holy Spirit has begun a work in you that that corresponds to the contours of his law and therefore there will be that holiness in your life. There will be more and more that which corresponds to and approximates to and reflects the law of God because those are the, the channels as it were down which God's gracious work in your life as you receive that grace by faith, those are the channels down which that grace will flow. So those are the, the kind of fundamentals of faith. And then you move on into chapter four. And I think those who 
uh, put the chapter headings in uh, to the, the scripture, which was obviously a, a much, much later edition. Uh, but I think they obviously got it right at that point. Um, it is a, a new start here. Chapter four in its entirety is really on about the primacy of faith. Uh, what Paul is wanting to underline is that faith involves believing the promise of God. Uh, in chapter five, uh, he will he will be saying that faith involves um, trusting ourselves into the person of Christ or believing into the person of Christ. But here he's saying that faith involves believing the promise of God. And his point is essentially through this chapter that it is thoroughly biblical. So there's the structure of the chapter for you. Uh, again, you should have that in your handout, and I hope the handout is helpful for you. Um, he, he starts off by uh, working through the teaching of the scriptures. Um, uh, we'll look at this in just a little bit more detail in a moment or two. Then he elaborates on the meaning of the sacrament uh, in Old Testament terms, the sacrament of circumcision. Then he moves on to consider again the nature of salvation, just in brief, and then rounds off with the lessons from the statement that he's made about salvation. That's uh, how the chapter holds together. Uh, and in essence, uh, his argument is that this way of understanding uh, how we get right with God and what God's salvation is, is thoroughly biblical. And it uh, means, bottom line, believing the promise of God. So again, if you have um, your Bible open, you'll see um, chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. What Paul is doing there, uh, we won't uh, read our way through it, you can read it for yourself, uh, is he is he's really um, pointing to the two key figures in the Old Testament. Um, the one, namely Abraham, um, who occupies the, the first five verses, is the uh, essentially the, the kind of prototypical believer. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, such a large, large portion of the, the Bible there is taken up with uh, him and his story because he is the, the kind of quintessential believer. This is what the life of faith looks like. This is what it is to be a believer. And Abram is the, the kind of prototypical believer. And David, uh, with whom Paul takes to do in verses six to eight, is the, the man most clearly after God's own heart. And that's how he's described. So this is what it is to be a believer. Uh, Abram, verses one to five. This is what it is to be, to be after God's own heart, David. And so he picks on these two. Um, the the two of them between them they in many ways they they actually um equate to on the one hand the law um abram and what's called the, the prophets and writings um the latter two often sort of collapse into one and are simply called the prophets and so you have this this common designation of the old testament as on the one hand the law and on the other the prophets and abram and david are the the kind of typical symbolic representative figures in many ways of that first part of the old testament abram the law and then the second part of the old testament the prophets uh, david 
and it was standard Jewish practice really to, to cite examples. If you wanted to prove your point, you would cite examples from the law and from the prophets. And so there is a sense in which that's what Paul's doing here to make his point that um, God's salvation has consistently been along these same lines. Verses 1 to 5, the example of Abram, as I say, he's the prototypical believer. And uh, the key scriptural proof text that Paul brings forward is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, uh, which he quotes here in verse 3. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you'll see that um, around that verse, which is the, the, the kind of pivotal central verse, in this statement about Abram here, verse three, uh, that is bracketed by verses one and two, where he is underlining that it is clearly not by works that Abram is put right with God. What should we say then about Abram, our forefather according to the flesh discovered in this matter? If in fact Abram was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Um, so he is knocking on the head any notion that uh, Abram was somehow put right with God because of what he did. Um, that's emphatically not the case. And he argues that uh, the very use of the terminology counted suggests that it is a gift rather than a right. And so he's, he's wanting to underline there that uh, it's not by works. That's the first thing that you uh, establish uh, in the life of Abram. It's not because of anything that Abram has done. That's verses one and two. And then verses four and five, the other side of verse three, uh, he is saying, but clearly it was by faith, uh, not by his working, but by his trusting the one who justifies the ungodly. Um, that's uh, in essence what he's drawing from the example of Abram. He's saying, okay, so you look at what the scriptures teach, you look at the example of Abram, your prototypical believer, um, how does he enjoy the salvation of God? It's manifestly not by works, but by faith. And you have that pivotal proof text, Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed God. That's to say he believed the promise of God. God made a promise, and you remember that uh, in our opening uh, section, chapter one, the first seven verses or so, what Paul is underlining, the basics of the gospel, the first way in which the gospel is to be understood, it is a promise. God makes a promise, and we believe that promise. And that's what you find, he says, in, Ab in Abram. When he moves on to David, the man most clearly after God's own heart in verses six to eight, um, you'll see that he's um, drawn out precisely the same thing. Um, that's what you find in David. Sin is not being counted against him. This is six to eight, and he's quoting here Psalm 32 verses one and two. Um, and, and he's saying that although by rights, um, his sin should have indeed meant that he was a, a non-starter, that he was a total write-off and everything, but that sin was not counted against him. So it's, it's out of the realm of desert. It's not what he deserves. It's not what should be applied to him on the basis of his performance. Uh, it is therefore by uh, gift. And it is uh, the, the same basic truth that he's underlining there. And so that's his first um, section here to underline the, uh, the fact that it's thoroughly biblical, this uh, way of understanding salvation that it involves believing the promise of God. Verses 9 and 12, he moves on to discuss the, the sacrament. 
Having established, that is, in the case of Abram, that his being right with God was by faith rather than by works, something which was given rather than gained, Paul now proceeds to address the relationship between that righteousness and ritual. Because one of the, the lines that was very common in Jewish thinking was that, um, okay, it, it's not by your performance as such, not because you, you kind of live a righteous life, but, but hey, at least you do comply with the ritual. And, and they would therefore often have argued, I've been circumcised, the sacrament of circumcision. Uh, I have engaged in, in that. Uh, I have had that ritual applied to me. And that ritual is what puts me right with God. And that's what Paul is going on to address here. And again, he wants to knock that on the head. Uh, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abram's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Um, I mean, he knows the answer and he's going to come straight out and say it was not after, it was before. So he's saying, um, think about the logic of it. You, you can't argue that he was he was made righteous because of the ritual, because uh, that comes afterwards, uh, chapter 17 as opposed to chapter uh, 15. And so what he's doing in verses 9 to 11a is uh, trying to help them understand the sacrament. Um, and there are two important observations which he wants to make. The first is that circumcision was subsequent to his being counted righteous. So you can't really say he was made righteous because he was circumcised, uh, because the circumcision came later. So he wants to observe and make clear to them that circumcision was subsequent to that being credited with righteousness. And he wants to underline as well that that circumcision was uh, not only subsequent to, but was also the seal on his being accounted righteous through his faith. It was confirmatory of what was already now the truth about him, rather than being the reason why it became the truth about him. And the conclusion, therefore, is um, very clear, uh, he argues in verses 9 to 11a, and that is simply that circumcision was not the reason for his being accounted righteous. And having established that in verses 9 to 11a, he then goes on to help them understand the significance of the, the ritual, the significance of circumcision. And he explains the significance of this um, by, by stressing the fact that God had two concerns in this. Uh, his purpose hereby was to be, on the one hand, inclusive so that because it is subsequent to his being declared righteous, it is not a condition of his being declared righteous. And therefore, um, it, uh, the, the salvation of God is not contingent on that sacrament. Uh, can't be because it's subsequent to uh, his being declared righteous. And so he's, he's wanting to, to underline the inclusiveness in God's purpose in so dealing with Abram. And then secondly, to prioritize faith over any formalities. And that perhaps needs, I suppose, just to be stressed again, that it's, it's not any of the formalities that we engage in that may be expressions of faith, that may be the seal on our faith, but it's not them which in any regard 
actually serve to make us righteous with God. So the fact that you have been baptized uh, is neither here nor there. The fact that you partake of the sacrament of, of communion or the Lord's Supper, however you might like to refer to it, is neither here nor there in terms of your being accounted righteous. The fact that you pitch up at worship every week, the fact that you read your Bible, the fact that you join in prayer, none of these, these are the kind of formalities that um, faith finds expression in, but none of them are themselves the essence of our being put right with God. Our being put right with God is not a sacramental thing. It is rather um, on account of that faith whereby we believe the promise of God. And that's what he then goes on to in verses 13 to 17, uh, the nature of salvation. Um, it's worth reading these verses um, just so that you can see the, the repetition of that word promise. It is a promise that has been made by God. Remember back to those opening verses of the letter. And uh, indeed, um, you, you only need to think of the way in which we speak of the Bible as the Old and the New uh, Testament or the Old and New Covenant um, and, and that word covenant is, is simply uh, promised. It is the old and new expression of that one and the same promise. And so he's coming back to this point again and again. What he'd said at the outset, he's coming back to it now. And so you'll notice in these verses 13 to 17, how through the course of this passage, three times that word promise appears. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abram and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing. And the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abram. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Again, quoting scripture, he is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So here's what he underlines about the promise of God, which lies at the heart of our salvation. Three important truths about that promise. First of all, it is emphatically undeserved. Um, that's in the nature of a promise. If, if it were um, God saying, uh, I, I will do this for you as long as you do X, Y, and Z, if you fulfill certain qualifications and conditions, it's no longer a promise. The only basis which God can make a promise is if it is utterly undeserved. It's not dependent on our performance at all. So it rests on grace. That's the first thing. It is undeserved. Um, and that's what he's saying in, in verse 16, for instance, the promise comes by faith, uh, by, by faith so that it may be by grace. Um, then secondly, it is unconditional. Um, it is therefore guaranteed. Uh, and that really is what makes it good news. Uh, we're no longer left in the place where we're wondering, have I done enough? 
Uh, I've maybe told you before about the the lady who who rang me up um, as many years ago, and I mean almost almost forty years ago. She was a member, had been a member of the uh, the Roman Catholic Church at the time for some forty years, and she rang me up uh, because she had seen in a work colleague um, a pattern of life that uh, she knew nothing about, and she said, "Whatever it is, she's got. I want it. Um, tell me what it is and how I get it." And she came and she uh, she worked through with me what the gospel is about. And she said, that's unbelievable. Um, and I said, well, read it for yourself. And I showed her the scriptures and said that that's amazing. Why has no one ever told me that for the past 40 years? I have lived in fear. I said, what, what's the fear? And she said, I never know whether I've done enough. And, and this is just the best news out that I, I, I don't have to worry about what I may have done and whether I've done enough. Um, it is a promise. And as such, it's unconditional, no conditions at all. Uh, and that is that is just good news. Get that and you do uh, just uh, hula hoops of, of joy and delight as you grasp that it is absolutely guaranteed. Um, that's the nature of the promise that uh, Paul is spelling out. And the third thing that he's spelling out is that it is also therefore unrestricted. If you if you say, well, it's it's only if you are a Jew, you're bringing in conditions. And therefore, by the very fact that it's a promise that is not dependent on any conditions, it means that it is open to all. And uh, his, pro his, his point is that this promise was made before circumcision, not in consequence of obedience to the law. And as such, therefore, it is open to all. Um, remember, the, the promise was that he would be the father of many nations and thus the father of all, meaning all who will believe. Uh, he's quoting Genesis chapter 17, verse 5 there. Uh, and he's saying it, it's there in your own scriptures. Um, that's what the Bible teaches. Um, it is a promise quintessentially. And that promise is undeserved. It is unconditional and it is unrestricted. That's then the, uh, the uh, third of the, the sections here under this uh, first main part of his argument that uh, faith is uh, essentially um, biblical, thoroughly biblical. Um, that's what the scriptures have always taught. Um, the, the place of the sacrament is subsequent to and the seal on the exercise of that faith and the, the reception of that righteousness. And the nature of salvation is such that it is a promise. And so he rounds off uh, this little section, uh, the end of chapter 4, verses 18 to 25, by drawing out um, lessons from it. And what he's doing here is he's picking up the statement in Genesis 15 and uh, chapter uh, 15, verses 5 and 6, and seeking to draw the parallels and learn the lessons from those parallels between Abram and ourselves. So he's coming back to Abram again and saying, okay, so we will learn from Abram, but how does this apply to ourselves? Where are the parallels? And how does this uh, feed into our situation and our lives? So again, from verse 18, um, first of all, we'll read this, the example of Abram before we come to the encouragement for ourselves. Against all hope, Abram, in hope, believed, 
and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. You remember the, uh, the remarkable experience that Abram had when God took him out one dark night and said, look up at the stars. Can you count the stars? They're innumerable. Just a vast, vast arena of stars. And God says, and, and that's what your descendants are going to be like. And this, remember, is, is the man who is uh, advanced in years, um, well on up in years, as is his wife. They haven't been able to have children. They are long past the age where they could have any children. And God is therefore saying to Abram something that uh, on any other basis, were it not that God was saying it, it is just utterly ridiculous. There's no way that that is going to happen. Uh, how on earth could it possibly happen? Um, and that's what Paul means by um, against all hope. Any any natural line of reasoning would mean you would rule that out the question. There would be no hope at all. But against that natural hope, Abram in hope believed and he believed the promise that God had made that he would be the father of many nations. Uh, because God had said that, so shall your offspring be. That was a promise that God has made. And he believed that without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteous. He was receiving what God was promising and receiving it, even although there was nothing, um, humanly speaking, that would suggest that this would indeed be the reality. But he believed God's word, God's promise over anything else that was there. And that's, that's the first thing really for us to grasp. He believed the promise that God had given. Um, now, I'm stressing that because this is the essence of what Paul wants us to be clear about, that faith involves believing the promise of God. And you'll notice here what he says in relation to how closely the faith of Abram is tied in to the promise of God. God's promise defied the observable facts. Abram would be the father of many nations, and Abram was as good as dead, and his wife was totally barren. So God's promise defied the observable facts. And over against that, Abram's faith trusted the reliable God. He was persuaded that God, verse 17, gives life to the dead and that God had power to do what he had promised. So however ridiculous the promise might seem on any human basis, however out of the frame and utterly impossible it would be, humanly speaking, Abram believed that God had power to come good on the promise that he was making, that God is able to do that which is impossible. So Paul is underlined that that's the essence of his faith. He believed the promise of God when that promise flew in the face of all observable facts and um, he trusted God as being reliable. Now, we're going to see how that um, translates into our own 
uh, situation in a moment or two. And on the back of that, you'll see what he's at pains to point out here through these verses 18 to 22 is that Abram was then treated as righteous. He, he received what God was giving, even although it, it didn't tally with the observable facts. He received what God was saying about him and his situation, and that was treated as, counted to him as, credited to him as righteousness. Not in the sense of, um, well, at least you believed, and so we're going to give you a few plus marks for that, and that, that'll maybe stand you in good stead. You've got a few brownie points because, hey, you believed. Um, it's not that his faith is, is what makes him righteous. It's by faith that he receives the righteousness that God is giving. And uh, he demonstrates that, uh, that readiness to believe a staggering promise that flies in the face of all observable facts that God makes in regard to him. And having established that, he then goes on in the closing three verses of the chapter to spell out the encouragement for ourselves. Verse 23, the words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, you'll see what Paul's doing, I hope. He's rounding off this first great statement about faith, where he's been insisting that this emphasis is thoroughly biblical. He's rounding this off by saying that God's salvation has always been extended and experienced in this way. And, and here's the essence of his argument summarized by him in conclusion um, under these three headings. I think I'll put that in the handout for you. Number one, God is a promising God. And the promises that he makes often are those that defy the observable facts. And we shall live, God says, as the righteous, even although we know, and Paul has been at pains to spell that out in chapter 1, verse 18 through to chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 20, even although we know we are actually not righteous, God says you will live as those that are righteous. That's, that's the statement that I'm making about you. You are the righteous. Uh, that's God's word over against the observable fact about ourselves that we're not. And we also, like Abram, we recognize we are as good as dead, spiritually speaking, through sin. Um, Paul underlines that in the likes of Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. Uh, even although we were dead in trespasses and sin, that's the reality about us. We, we are that dead. We can't see. We can't hear. We can't do anything about the situation ourselves because we are dead. And dead people do not do anything. They can't by definition. And we are as good as dead through sin. We, we know that to be the truth about ourselves. But God says, but you will live. And that's the promise that God makes, uh, an astonishing promise. Uh, Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, the righteous will live by faith. You will live as the righteous, even though you're as good as dead through sin. So the second strand to his argument is that if God is a promising God, we are a believing and a trusting people. We believe 
and him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. We believe in the promise that he has made that Jesus was handed over to death for our sin. That's a promise that God has made that that's what Jesus was doing. He was handed over as the one who alone didn't need to die, didn't need to be forsaken by God, his father, uh, on account of his own righteous life. But nonetheless, he was handed over to death for our sin. And he was raised to life in order that we might be clear that the price of our wrongdoing and our sin had been paid in its entirety there was nothing more to be paid no more death to be died he had died every single death that needed to be died in his death and therefore his being raised from the dead is for our justification a declaration by god that we are now in him righteous and we believe that um, about uh, God. We are a trusting people who trust God's promise that that's what was happening in Jesus. He died for us, that we might be forgiven. And at the heart, therefore, of salvation is a credited righteousness. Um, that's to say a righteousness that has been secured for us uh, by Jesus and is now given to us accredited to us so faith is believing in the one who calls things that are not as though they were which is the essence of the righteousness which is now ours because um, things that are not is are being righteous we know that that's not the case about us we are not righteous and we believe in the one who calls those things that are not as though they were and when God says, you are now, on account of my son, righteous, we believe that. God is able to call us unrighteous as we are. He is able to call us righteous because of the righteousness which he promised he would effect and that he would give to those who believe him and trust him on this and who receive it, therefore, by faith. And that righteousness, as I've sought to underline, is essentially twofold. Um, the, the righteousness that Jesus effects for us by a life lived of perfect obedience on the one hand, and along with that, satisfying the demands of righteousness, a righteous God in his bearing the consequences of our lack of righteousness. And that's the dual righteousness that has been accomplished for us and given to us by God in Jesus. And so faith involves believing the promise of God. That's the first important truth about faith. It involves believing the promise of God. And it is, says Paul, thoroughly biblical. That's what the whole Bible all along has been teaching. I'm not coming up with something new. And what God was doing in Jesus was not plan B because plan A had failed. It's what God had all along been declaring would be done for us. And it was only ever on that basis that people were put right with God thereby. 
and he cites the the two um, classic individuals from the Old Testament, Abram from the law, the prototypical believer, David from the prophets as the one uh, after the heart of God. And he says, that's what you find in their lives as well. It's not by works, it's by faith. It's not in accordance with the law because they perform well according to the law. It is by grace. Um, it is a promise, the gospel from the very beginning. And God's salvation is guaranteed, therefore, to all who trust him, who believe the promise that he has made in Jesus. Right, we move now into part two of uh, this uh, whole section on faith. Um, important to remember what Paul is on about here. He's, he's concerned that we understand uh, what salvation is, that it's by grace. And how it is, therefore, that we receive God's salvation, how it becomes real for us, not just in our heads, but in reality, in experience. How does it become real? And the way that it becomes real for us, the way it's ours in the fullest sense is through the exercise of faith. And it's important, therefore, and Paul is, is careful to underline this, it's important that we understand what that faith is and his first point is that faith always biblical faith involves believing the promise of god so it's it's not independent of the teaching of scripture it's not some sort of experience that you you kind of mystically have it is it is very closely tied to the teaching and the truth of scripture because the scriptures are essentially the promise of god the covenant of god the old covenant the new covenant the covenant uh, looking forward to its fulfillment the covenant looking back beyond that fulfillment in and through jesus it is always believing the promise of god but um, it is also believing into the person of christ in other words if it is on the one hand thoroughly biblical it is also essentially relational and it's that which paul really is addressing in chapter five we are reconciled to the father that's a relational thing through our union with his son that's a relational union and it's faith which brings us into that union with jesus and so the chapter really divides into these two parts, first 11 verses. Uh, he is speaking about reconciliation through Christ. And in verses 12 to 21, our identification with Christ. And we'll look at these in the uh, final part of our time this evening. Um, hugely, hugely important. And uh, I, I still remember uh, when these truths uh, finally dawned on my heart and it, it really was liberating to to begin to appreciate and then to experience the truth of the gospel and the wonder of God's salvation and I I hope that it's the same for yourselves as well so first of all verses 1 to 11 um, reconciliation through Christ uh, I sometimes refer to this as uh, a story of homecoming. Um, that's the subtitle of Henry Nguyen's book, 
uh, called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, uh, the next slide will give you a, a picture of that. You, uh, if you manage to get a hold of uh, that book, um, do try and get a read of it. It is um, uh, an excellent book, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And its subtitle is A Story of Homecoming. And in many ways, that's um, what our salvation is. Faith issues in reconciliation through Christ, uh, the substance of verses 1 to 11. And you will notice, um, if you have uh, your Bibles open there, chapter 5, you will notice that the, the passage, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5, is bookended by this twofold reference to it being through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 1 and verse 11. So it, it's, um, it's bookended very deliberately by that uh, insistence that it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that really sets the tone for what this whole chapter is about, namely our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, our being one with him. And faith uh, involves our believing into the person of Christ. And uh, what he um, points to here, and we'll look at this in just a little bit of detail in a moment, but uh, uh, flag it up in this way for you. Verses 1 to 2, um, he is uh, speaking there about the, the relational revolution that happens uh, as we believe into the person of Christ. And verses 3 to 11 really spill out into uh, a description of a radical rejoicing that becomes ours as we exercise that faith, as we entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ lay hold of the promise of God and recognize that what God has promised is all packaged in the person of his son, Jesus, and therefore we entrust ourselves to him. That's a relational thing. So verses one and two, first of all, a relational revolution, as I've described it there. Um, therefore, says Paul, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, there is uh, a massive relational change uh, that he's pointed to here in our, our experience um, a massive relational change in terms of our uh, relationship with the living God. And you'll see the, the three great affirmations that he makes through these verses. Important to get them. Number one, we have peace with God. Uh, that in many ways relates primarily, but not exclusively, to the past. Things that have happened in the past, things that we've done, things that have happened to us that otherwise have guard our experience and have marred our relationship with God, things that could be leveled against us, uh, things that haunt us, uh, things that we've said, things that we've done, attitudes that we've adopted, choices that we've made, we can't undo them because they're all done now and they're all in the past and those things can otherwise haunt us. But now uh, we have peace with God. Uh, we are right with him. There is nothing now that can be pinned against us. Doesn't matter what anyone drags up from the murky past, can't be pinned against us because it's already been pinned against Jesus. 
That's actually the, uh, the specific language that Paul uses in Colossians about Jesus on the cross. Everything that could be literally pinned against you, that could be nailed against you, that could nail you completely, was nailed against him and was all nailed to that cross. Um, so it, it doesn't matter what the Sun newspaper or whatever other newspaper you like to think might drag up from your past and want to try and pin it against you. It can't be pinned against you anymore because it's already been pinned against Jesus. And therefore, you have peace with God. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't acknowledge your um, continuing sinfulness and things that uh, you get wrong and say wrong and do wrong and so on. Uh, but it means that none of these uh, can be pinned against you because they've all already been pinned against him. Things that are in the past that uh, we can't undo, things that are in the future that uh, we've yet to do, all of them have already been pinned against him. And so we have peace with God. There is nothing now that can be leveled against us. Um, and that really was one of the big, big things, for instance, with that lady that I mentioned who came to me because she'd seen something about her work colleague and wanted to know what the gospel was. Uh, it was liberating for her to be released from the fear that somehow she hadn't done enough or she would fall short. Uh, it was a peace that she uh, knew. And uh, I have to say, 40 years down the line, I had contact with her just the other day, and um, she is still rejoicing in that peace with God. That's the first great affirmation that, that has transformed our relationship with the living God. We have peace with God. Secondly, we have access to God. Um, that's present tense in the uh, here and now. Um, we have that immediacy of access to the God who is king over all creation. The God who sits upon the throne of the, the whole of the universe. We have that immediacy of access to him as his children. Um, through our Lord Jesus Christ, yes, we recognize that and acknowledge that, but that's the privilege of that relationship that we now have with Jesus as we lay hold of him, entrust ourselves to him, we have this access to God. And, and he's the God who made the whole world. He's the great creator. He's the God who does things and does things well, who does the impossible, who simply needs to speak his word. And it is done, who says, let there be light. And there is light, who is able to speak into the tomb of a dead man and say, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth. We are able to come to that God, great in his power, beyond all our understanding. And we are able to lay our petitions pour out our hearts to him as psalm 62 says trust in him at all times so people pour out your heart to him you don't have to worry about the language that you use before him you don't have to worry about getting the right sort of phrase using polite uh, uh, ecclesiastical language god's not bothered about that he just likes you to pour out your heart if you're having a bad day you pour it out if you're having a good day you pour it out if you're worried you pour it all out pour it all out to the Lord because you are his beloved children. You have that access to him through Jesus Christ, that immediacy of access, um, thrilling. And um, in Ephesians chapter three, verse 20, for instance, he, he reminds us then that, that that God to whom we come is the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or even think. So, so never think, you know, that's the kind of big thing I'm going to ask of God. Maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't ask him quite for that. There's nothing that you can ask of God that is 
is going to leave him scratching his head and thinking, help, you know, that's a big ask there. Um, he is able to do not just more than you ask, more than you even think, but don't dare to ask. He is able to do immeasurably more than all of that. Um, that's a huge privilege. We have access now to God. It's, it's a relational revolution that has taken place. We come to know God like that. We have peace with God and we have access to God. And the third thing that he points to here is we have a joy in God or we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And in some ways, this points towards the future um, as we, we anticipate the day when we will indeed in the nearer presence of our great almighty saviour God uh, will delight in him. There are lasting pleasures, solid joys that we know in him. And uh, the, the verb that Paul uses here uh, has at its root um, the, the word uh, that's translated in English as, as our neck. So instead of kind of cowering low before him and cowering low before others, we, we kind of stretch our necks with a, a pride in all that God has been pleased to do for us, all that he is. We delight in him. We are, we are proud of him. We rejoice in him and say, hey, look at my dad. Look at my father. How great is my God and my savior. And we're happy to hold our heads high, to stick our necks up and, and boast in him. We, we have a confidence and we're not, not embarrassed about him. We're not worried about him. We delight in him. Uh, a totally new uh, relationship that we have with him. Um, that's the first thing that he's on about here, a relational revolution. And following on from that, really picking up on that note of, uh, of joy and delight in verses 3 to 11, uh, he speaks about and uh, articulates the nature of that radical rejoicing in verses 3 to 11. First of all, verses 3 and 4, he stresses that we now have a new perspective not only so, he says, but we also glory in our sufferings, not because we're masochists, not because we, we take a peculiar pleasure in adversity, because we don't, but rather our perspective has altered. No longer are we thinking, hey, why is this happening to me and what have I done wrong and maybe this is just going, going, going to turn out bad. Rather now, we see it in a different light. We recognize, we know that suffering produces perseverance. It will do something to us and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And so we have an entirely new perspective. We recognize that God is at work in our lives and in our world and therefore are able to handle adversity, the tough times, the difficult times, the worrying times. We're able to handle them in a different light because we know that we have that peace with God and we have that access to God and that our God is well able to handle anything and is well able to use that to good effect in our lives and will cause that to issue in good and therefore we we hope in God we, we don't know quite what's going to happen through it all but through it all God will be doing something and we trust him for that because he is a great God we delight in him that's the first part of this radical rejoicing verses five to eight we not only have a new perspective but we have a new assurance and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Um, and uh, I, uh, I think that the, the whole tenor of that is um, that that is the love that God has for us, uh, rather than a love that is is kind of like God's love uh, that is now uh, becomes our love for other people. It's it's not that the Paul is on about. He's talking about the love that God has for us has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we have a new assurance because of the love which God has for us. And he speaks about the way that we know this love. First of all, verse five, subjectively, um, that's the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into our hearts. Um, the, the terminology there poured out is uh, suggestive deliberately of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. It's not a, just a, a little trickle of God's love. He simply pours his love into our hearts until it's, it's fit to burst almost. Um, it is the aorist tense that Paul uses. Um, and in the, uh, the, the language of Greek, the use of the aorist tense is always... Uh, indicative of a once for all uh, activity, something that happened once for all, it doesn't need to be done again. That's what has been done once and for all. And when we were brought to newness of life, that's what happened. God poured his love into our hearts. And you'll see that that's the terminology used into our hearts. That's what Jonathan Edwards was on about when he spoke about uh, the affections. It's not simply something that gets stuck in our heads. We, we happen to believe that intellectually. It affects our hearts. It moves us. It stirs us. The, the reality of the love uh, that God has for us. Um, and sometimes that is so intense that we, we almost have to beg God to, to stop pouring his love into our hearts. It is, it is so fulsome. Uh, I, I still, uh, 35 and more years, subsequent to my father's death, uh, I still can vividly remember actually having on my knees to ask God just to, to kind of pause in terms of pouring his love into my heart. I could, I could handle the grief, but what was breaking my heart was, was the sheer volume of the love of God that was being poured into my heart. And I thought, my heart is going to break. It's going to burst. There is so much of the love of God that was being poured in by his Holy Spirit. It is something that affects us profoundly. Um, and that's what he's talking about in verse five, the, the subjective experience of the love of God that the Holy Spirit gives to his people. And along with that, verses six to eight, the, the, the knowledge of that objectively as well, demonstrated by his son's death for us. And you'll see that that's what he's pointing to in these verses. Um, the fact that Christ died for the ungodly. Why, why was that done? Uh, it was done because of God's love for us. Every time as you come into a church building and you look at that cross that very often is on the wall, it is to remind you that God loves you and, and has demonstrated that love in the person of his son. And so he goes on in, in verses 9 and 10 to speak about the, the new expectancy, therefore, that we have as well. Since we have now been justified by his blood, 
how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? In other words, if, if this is what God did for us while we were still enemies, think what he's going to do for us when we're his friends, when we've been reconciled. We've been saved from God's wrath in the future, and we've been saved through his life in the here and now. And we may therefore expect that God who has done great things for us when we were enemies, now that we're reconciled, to be even more disposed to do good for us. And therefore, there is a, a real expectancy created in our hearts. And uh, then finally, in this section, verse 11, a new affection as well. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, where he um, started off at verse two, coming back to that, through whom we've now received reconciliation. That's the present tense, same verb at the start of the chapter. It is a continuing experience. We rejoice in God. We delight in him. And uh, that's one of the reasons why God bids us um, gather together for worship on a Sunday. It's just to get our eyes back on him and remind ourselves who he is, what he's done, what he's like, how he works, and to delight in him. That's the reconciliation um, through Christ that God has effected, whereby we come to know him. And that involves a relational revolution and a radical rejoicing. Then finally, verses 12 to 21, we've got 15 minutes to round this off uh, and we could spend a whole load longer than that on this. Um, I've, I've flagged up there a tale of two cities, uh, the, the book by Charles Dickens, The Best of Time is the Worst of Times, um, The Age of Wisdom, The Age of Foolishness, the, the Epoch of Belief, The Epoch of Incredulity, The Season of Light, The Season of Darkness, The Spring of Hope, The Winter of Despair, um, a tale of two very different cities. And, and in some ways, that's what, what Paul is on about in these verses, um, two very different worlds in which we live. Um, either in the one or the other, two very different families to which we belong. Which do you belong to? Which world do you live in? Uh, is it light or darkness? Is it life or death? Is it hope or despair? Um, that's the, the tenor of this. And what he's essentially pointed to here is that uh, faith consists in identification with Christ. That's, uh, as I say, verses 12 to um, 21. It issues in reconciliation through Christ, and it consists in identification with Christ. And the essence of this is, get a hold of this, what is true of him is now true of me. Um, say that again. What is true of him is true of me. Faith involves my believing into the person of Christ, a relational entrusting of myself to him in such a way that I become one with him. Um, hugely important to understand that. And that's what he's going to, to expound in these verses. And uh, it, it is liberating to discover that what is true of him is true of you as a believer. Um, it's um, akin to marriage where we understand at a human level, and, and this is um, uh, only a very inadequate portrayal of the reality of this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, but it's, it's one that the New Testament particularly spells out that um, it is that sort of relationship that we come into with him. 
what happens in marriage is that um, what is true of the one becomes true of the other. Um, if I'm Mr. Middleton, my wife is now Mrs. Middleton. If I'm a millionaire, she's now a millionaire. Um, in case you're worried, I'm not. But if that's the case, everything that is true about me becomes true of her. Um, and everything that is true of Jesus now becomes true of you. Not because of anything about you, but because of everything about him. So if he is the son of God, you are a child of God. Uh, if he has that favor with his father, you are that favor with his father. Everything absolutely everything that is true of him is true now of you and that's why paul is able to say in the start of ephesians chapter one praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms uh, why because he has every spiritual blessing and that's now true of us okay so let's let's run through that first of all the adams family as i've phrased it verses 12 to 14 um paul's Starting point here is to underline what we all are by nature as part of Adam's family, as part of the human race. We were born into the family that is descended from Adam. Adam made a mess. And what happened when Adam made a mess, when uh, the, uh, the, the forebears, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden, were, um, first of all, the entrance of death. That's what God had always said. Um, and uh, it wasn't simply something that affected Adam, and okay, it's tough on him, but uh, he messed up, and so he's got the consequences. It affected absolutely everyone else in the human race, all his family, all who were descended from him, what Paul speaks about as the invasion of sin. Uh, sin's consequences are uh, death. Uh, death is the wages of sin. Um, it's it's a little bit like a, a kind of Dutch boy disobeying his parents and being, you know, a typical boy thinks, if I just poke a hole in that that dike there, you know, I wonder what happened if I poke a hole there. Even all his parents have told him, never, ever do that. Uh, just even a little hole, don't do it. Um, and he thinks, well, you know, I mean, surely one little hole is not going to do any damage. Um, and if he does and the dike is breached, then his disobedience doesn't just affect him, it affects the whole of the, um, the, uh, the territory. Everyone there is flooded out as the sea comes bursting in and simply swamps and drowns everyone. Um, sin came in like that into humanity. And then he speaks about the spread, therefore, of death. Uh, all sinned. Um, there are two complementary aspects of this that uh, are highlighted by Paul in these verses. First is that we are all implicated in his sin as part of his family. If he is the head of the family sins, then, then everyone is, is, is branded as part of that sinful family, um, blacklisted uh, in terms of, of heaven's perspective. We're all part of that family. We belong there and uh, God deals in uh, families. And therefore, we are, we are all blacklisted as a result. And more than that, we're all contaminated by the, the spiritual virus that has got into Adam's blood. Um, and therefore, every single descendant now has that, that um, contaminated spiritual virus called sin. So not only was the entrance of sin, there was the spread of sin and then uh, the reign of death as well. Uh, sin is more than simply breaking the law. It holds sway over us. And the proof of that is seen in the fact that we all die. All of us die. 
um, and that's simply the, uh, the, the solemn reality. The wages of sin is death. We all now die. And, and Genesis is, is very, very clear about that. Genesis chapter 3 describes the entrance of sin. And uh, chapter 4 describes the spread of that sin. And chapter 5, if you go back to read that, it is a catalogue of different individuals, believers included. It is the believing family there. And he died. And he died. And he died. You lose count of the number of times. That's the phrase that recurs. That's what happened. Death spread and reigned supreme. Um, and that's the Adam's family. That's the family to which we all by nature belong. And it is a family that is marked by death. It has no future at all. Then in verses 15 to 17, and because our time is running out, I'm just going to leave you to read the passage yourself. But in 15 to 17, um, you will see that what he then does is contrast the Adam's family with what it is like to be with Jesus and underlines with Jesus. It is both bigger and better. Uh, he highlights through these verses, uh, as you'll see from uh, your handout and from the, the screen there, uh, these three important contrasts between Adam and Jesus. Um, in Adam and in Adam's family, it is a one-off act. Adam sinned and one act and, and it's curtains for him and for the family. In Jesus, it is a never-ending flow of grace. Uh, and the other, the one man, Adam, uh, through his trespass, the, the many died there and then. It's the era's tense. Happened back there and then. They just died. All of us back then is when we died, uh, when he died, when he sinned um, through that one trespass, a one-off act. And with Jesus, by contrast, uh, in the, the new man, Jesus, God's life-giving grace keeps on flowing endlessly to the many. It's not a one-off thing that you kind of get one dose of, uh, of Jesus' grace, but after that it's, it's zilch. It is a never-ending flow of grace. That's the first contrast that he draws. Second contrast that he draws is this, that in Adam, one sin is fatal, whereas in Jesus, many sins are dealt with. Um, this in Jesus is a gift rather than desert or judgment and it is after many sins rather than just after one sin it's not a, a kind of like for like that uh, adam sinned and in comes uh, uh, the consequence um and jesus salvation covers not just one sin but uh, a lifetime's worth of sin on our part covers many sin that's the second contrast that he's drawing and his point is to say it, it with jesus it is bigger and it is better um, and you either belong to Adam's family, in which what is true about Adam is true of you. Adam sinned, you sinned. Adam died, you die. Adam was cast out, you are cast out. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then it's life and it's fullness and it's hope. And the third contrast, therefore, that he draws in some ways the most radical of all, in Adam, basically you rot, whereas in Jesus, you reign. Um, that's putting it in fairly stark terms, but that basically is what he's on about. It's not just that life now reigns where once death reigned. It's the fact that actually you now get to reign. Um, it, it is um, a, a marvelous contrast, the experience of being in Christ, where what is true of him becomes true of you. 
is in such marked contrast to the experience of being in Adam. And, and that really is what he then goes on in verses 18 to 21 to spell out the what I've called the one for all principle uh, in these closing verses. And the, the principle itself he establishes in verses 18 and 19 uh, that I've said uh, already. What is true of him is true of um, me as a believer. Um, and what is true of me if I'm in Adam? Um, what is true of him is, is true of me in Adam? What is true of Christ is true of me if I'm in Christ? And you'll see the, the language that he uses there. Um, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, uh, act resulted in justification and life for all people. Um, I, I should stress, as you read through this there, that verse 18, when he speaks about um, resulted in justification and life for all people, he's not suggesting universalism. Um, you just have to read the rest of Paul's letter and the rest of his writings to appreciate it. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is all people who are in Christ, um, for each and every one, it results in justification in life for all who are in Christ. That's, that's true of all who are in Christ. As for all who are in Adam, one trespass resulted in condemnation for everyone who is part of that family. And, and then in verse 19, he goes on, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one uh, man, the many will be made righteous. And you see here when many is used by him in verse 19, he's, he's not contradicting what he's just said, but recognizing that both families are actually exceedingly numerous. There are many who are in Adam. There are now many who are in Christ. It's not just kind of one or two slipped in and become part of, of a new family, a new humanity in Jesus. Um, it's, it's a multitude that none can number. Um, and that's the, the contrast that he's drawing there. The law uh, was brought in, verse 20. Um, uh, that's what he goes on now to, to say, having established the principle that what is true of your um, representative, either Adam or Christ, is now true of you. Um, because Jesus lives, you live. Because he's uh, shot through with the Holy Spirit of God, because he is the Holy Spirit of God, because there is that oneness about God. That is true of us as well. God by his Spirit dwells in us. Jesus by his Spirit dwells in us. We are indwelt. Everything that is true of him is true of us. There is that divinity, therefore, within us. And we live out our lives no longer in our strength, but it is his life lived in and through us. Uh, everything that is true of him now true of us as well and he concludes therefore with reference to the role of law um, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase but where sin increased grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's highlighting really the contrast between these two different realms or families. On the one, uh, law leads simply to sin uh, and sin leads to death. Uh, the other family, as you belong to Jesus Christ, uh, begins not with law but with grace. It leads to righteousness and it flows out into life in all its fullness. 
and he's showing thereby why all along it has been by faith, not by works, by grace and not by law, that God's salvation is experienced. We are brought into union with Jesus Christ so that what is true of him is now true of us. And therefore, it is life rather than death that is our experience. Now, he's he's flagged up law and sin there because he recognizes that um, there will arise in our minds the thought, well, okay, if, if I'm in Christ and everything that's true of him is true of me, how, how come I still get things so badly wrong? And that's why next time uh, he picks up and we will pick up with uh, his um, uh, analysis of sin and, and how we, we understand the reality of sin in the lives of those who are now in Christ. And that's what chapter six and seven are about. And as I say, that's um, next week and it will be next Monday evening. Uh, February the 8th, but uh, it's nine o'clock. We'll close at that. Let me just close with prayer. God, our Father, there, there is so much um, material that is rich and enriching here that it, it's hard for us simply to take it all on board in a one round. So I'd, I'd want to ask that as we've worked our way through it, you'd help each and every one uh, to have the time to, to work through it again, just at a slower pace, perhaps, uh, to reflect on it, to savor it, to allow your Holy Spirit simply to seal that truth to all our hearts, uh, that we may indeed be able to rejoice uh, and thrill in the, uh, the, the, the wonder of your grace extended to us in Jesus, received by faith and transforming our whole lives. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your life. Uh, enable us to live that and to enjoy that to your praise and glory in Jesus name. Amen.